Well, we are continuing our study looking at the book of Daniel today. We are in Daniel 3. We just, of course, read the text. I trust your Bibles are open. And we'll begin to make our way through this passage this morning. <clears throat> See if you can answer this question uh, for me, just in your head. What is it called when you do the right thing when nobody's looking? The answer, of course, that maybe you thought of is integrity. Now let me ask another question. What is it called when you do the right thing when everybody is looking? That is called courage. Every Christian needs to have both integrity and courage. But let's be honest, sometimes the first one is easier than the second one. Which is easier, to talk about Jesus at home or to talk about Jesus at work? Which is easier, to sit down with God in private or to stand up for God in public? Integrity and courage. So far in the book of Daniel, we have seen that the, the Hebrew children clearly have both. In Daniel 1, we saw their integrity when they said, we will not eat the king's food. And today in Daniel chapter 3, we see their courage when they likewise say, we will not worship the king's idol. They did what was right when nobody was looking, and then they did what was right when everybody was looking. How on earth did a trio of teenage Jewish young men have the clear mind and the steel backbone and the leather skin to defy the most powerful man in the world. Where did that kind of courage come from? And do we, today as a church, do we as God's people, do we have that same kind of courage? Are we willing at times to swim against the tide to do what's right when everybody is looking? As I've studied this passage all week, I have prayed one prayer every day, many times during the day. Lord, make us the kind of church that will step up, stand up, and speak up, even when everybody is looking. So how can we do that? Well, we find the answers to that question in our story, Daniel chapter 3. Now, before we jump in, let's deal with the elephant in the text. Where is Daniel? Did you notice he's nowhere in these verses? Well, the short answer is, I don't know. But I do have a bit of a guess. If you look at the end of chapter 2, last week we saw at the end of verse 49, it says that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were appointed, notice, over the administration of the province of Babylon. 
Well, in today's chapter, verse 1, they, this golden statue is set up where? In the plains of Dura, which is in the province of Babylon. So this is their, the, the area they work in. But if you go back to the end of 249, remember, it says Daniel worked where? It specifically says he worked at the king's court. So it seems like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were like regional managers. But Daniel had a desk job at the home office. He worked at the capital there in Babylon, and so he's at the king's court. They're off on the business trip, and that's why they're there and he is not. By the way, I think Daniel's absence is actually a little lesson in this chapter. Daniel's clearly the ringleader of this group, right? His name comes first. He speaks on their behalf many times. It's often said that a mark of good leadership is what happens when the leader is gone. Right? If I'm away on a Sunday for vacation and Forest Baptist Church completely falls apart, I have not done my job very well. It is, it is good that the, the things continue. Well, guess what? In this case, this is not just a testament to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It is a testament to Daniel's leadership and his influence on them and their example. Well, this whole mess starts in verse 1 when it says that Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. Now, I wonder where he got that idea. Well, it's pretty easy to see if you were here last week in chapter 2, he had a dream about an image, about a giant statue. And if you remember last week, Daniel, when he interpreted the dream, he told Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head. And apparently it went to his head. Nebuchadnezzar decided he didn't want to just be the head of gold, he wanted to be the entire statue of gold. He didn't want the thought of his kingdom passing and another coming after him. He wanted to show that, that he was preeminent over all the nations. And so he erects a giant gold-plated statue that was the length of three school buses, end to end to end. I've heard it said that architects have egos as big as their buildings. I don't know if that's true for all architects, but that's definitely true for Nebuchadnezzar in this passage. He is following in the footsteps of his ancestors who in Genesis chapter 11 in the same plains, in these same fields, in the same location decided that they were going to build the Tower of Babel. Why? So that they could make a name for themselves. The statue is gold, as we said, from top to bottom, not just on the head. That's because Daniel is not, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar is not just challenging the interpretation of Daniel, he is challenging the God of Daniel. We don't know how much time has passed, but apparently he has forgotten his own confession that Daniel's God was the God of gods. A bad memory and a big ego is a terrible combination. And he has both of them. And he is short-sighted and blind, and so he has decided that he wants to be the whole statue. So he invites all the peoples of, the earth, uh, of his kingdom to this red carpet gala event. You know, black ties and fancy dresses. And they all come to what verse 2 calls the dedication of the image. I don't know if you've ever been to a building dedication, you know, when a new company opens or a museum or something like that. But you've at least seen them on TV. 
you know, there's, there's camera crews and ribbon cuttings and, you know, little speeches and mild applause. You know, there's this, there's this little experience. Well, what's happening here, though, as much as it might seem like that, this is not just the grand opening of a Best Buy. They were invited to a worship service. Verse 4 says that he hired, it says, the herald loudly proclaimed something to them. Nebuchadnezzar hired a street preacher. That's what a preacher is, by the way, a herald. Someone who speaks for the king, who announces what the king wants to be said. And so he, he stands up and says, this is the message of the king. Look at the statue. Admire the statue. And then bow before the statue. He says, when you, when you hear the sound of the instruments that he named, by the way, did you see that whole list of instruments? I think it shows this is not a ragtag band that was just thrown together. This was an orchestrated, pun intended, this is an orchestrated event. In other words, this wasn't spontaneous. There is some coercion going on here. Babylon did not have the First Amendment. There was no freedom of religion. You were expected to worship whomever or whatever the king worshipped, and you could have your gods, but you had to also include his gods. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to make sure that everybody knows that they should include his God. By the way, did you notice some strange phrases repeated in this text? This is really repetitive. It's redundantly redundant all throughout this chapter. One of those phrases, it calls him Nebuchadnezzar the king. Did you see that? It doesn't just call him Nebuchadnezzar. It constantly says the king, the king, the king. The king. Why is it doing that? Because it wants it to be clear that what happened in Daniel 3 was not a request. This was not optional. This was a command from the guy at the top. And so to defy this command was to defy Nebuchadnezzar himself. There's another phrase that I found strange that bugged me all week. It's this phrase, had set up. Did you see that? The statue he had set up. The statue he had set up. It says it over and over. Well, first of all, I think it shows that Nebuchadnezzar was proud of this. This was his little pet project. But I think even more than that, Daniel, remember, was the one that wrote this. I think it's Daniel's way in part of showing the absurdity of this whole situation. Think about it. This giant golden statue had to be set up, which means they used hammers and chisels and saws and bricks and pulleys and ropes. It's sort of like the text is asking, how can a god be made by men? Bowing to this statue is as ridiculous as bowing to a stack of Legos. If you can build it, why would anyone worship it? It had to be set up. But along that line, I also think that it's hinting at the story itself and the plot. I think Daniel is saying in this, not only did the statue had to be set up, but he's also showing us that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to be set up. Think about it. 
Nebuchadnezzar and the ancients, they didn't mind if people had other gods. You could have whatever god you wanted. You just had to keep adding his god to it. But there was one pesky little nation out there who insisted and lived by the motto, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that was the Jews. This whole thing's a setup. And so the herald says, when you hear the music, kiss the ground. And P.S., if you don't, you'll be cast into a furnace of blazing fire. As a kid, I remember hearing that in Sunday school and wondering, why is there a giant pizza oven in the middle of Babylon? You know, what is, what is, this, what is this thing? Well, this was probably a kiln. Remember, the statue is 90 feet tall. We, it could have been totally gold but it's probably gold plated and so they would use this giant kiln to bake the bricks to build the platform and the pedestal and all that was there and given the size of the statue you can see this is not an easy bake oven right this is a massive furnace that they have built for this occasion and it's probably just within eye shot of the statue itself Imagine a huge stone igloo with two openings like a train tunnel on both ends and a smokestack on top. Large enough and hot enough to burn mud and if needed, to burn men. By the way, do you know what the fiery furnace is here? I wrote down in my notes, this is called Babylonian cancel culture. Right? Right? You get on board with us, or we're going to turn up the heat, and if need be, we will erase you completely. We will get rid of your, men, your memory if you defy the spirit of the age. So you can understand now, seeing the statue and seeing the, the kiln and hearing the command and even the threat, why verse 7 says, quote, all the peoples fell down. And they worshiped. You've probably seen pictures like I have of majority Muslim countries when there's the call to prayer. And it's just the sea of people that you can see as far as the eye can see with their faces down there praying to a false god. That's, that's the image here. That's the picture of a field, of the whole plain, like football fields of people lying down. You want to talk about peer pressure? Literally, everybody's doing it. And by the way, as I said, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't asking for exclusive worship. Again, chances are, given the polytheistic and syncretistic tendency of ancient cultures, it was just you need to add this to everything else that you do. And I think, let's be honest, our world is still trying to sweet-talk us into the same thing. We have to listen closely, but they're, they're, they're oftentimes tempting us. Saying, you don't have to even give up your beliefs. You just absolutely have to make room for ours. You just have to, to include ours. You just have to endorse ours. It's subtle. It doesn't seem like a big deal. Just bake the cake, we're told. It's just sugar. Just some flour, a little few eggs. It's not that big a deal. You don't have to come to the wedding. You just need to, you just need to show your support of it. 
Just add this to what you're doing. Just use the pronouns. Come on, you don't have to. You can, you can be called what you want, but you've got to make room for what we want. You don't have to have an abortion. Just, just help pay for it. You can keep doing what you want to do, but you've also got to do what we want you to do. This is still happening. We saw in chapter 1 that sometimes God's people can cooperate with Babylon, but let's be very careful. Sometimes Babylon wants us to compromise completely. And so not only is the statue high, but the stakes are high. The choice at verse 7 is simple, bow or burn. Now, this is the point of the story that some of you, if you're 40 years old like me or younger, this is the point where you're supposed to start singing veggie tales to yourself. Remember that? Oh, no, what you gonna do? The king likes Daniel more than you, right? You remember that song? I was reflecting on that and thought about it, and I thought, that's actually a brilliant way to talk about this verse. That's the question. Every one of us have and will face, oh no, what you gonna do moments in our life. A person walks by and sees the Bible in your locker and they say, what do you got a Bible in your locker for? Oh no, what you gonna do? Your hairstylist said, you're not one of those Christians, are you? Oh no, what you gonna do? If we're going to try to represent God, we're going to bump up into moments like this. So what should we do? Well, let's see what they did. Well, Babylon was apparently like preschool because they had tattletales in the group. Verse 8, it says that, that there were some Chaldeans who came forward and brought charges against the Jews. By the way, that verse 8 is, is oddly worded. There may be a hint of of racism or anti-Semitism in, in the way this happened. It's not just about this. They actually had it out against them because they were the Jews, the way it's written. But nevertheless, they come and say, these guys, he names them in verse 12, and they specifically say, notice it says, O king, they have disregarded you. Because why? This is not just a policy. This is from the king. And so they said, they have disregarded you. And so, we see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow. It's interesting, we don't actually even have the record of their defiance. Did you notice that? We don't exactly know what they did. We don't know if they stood with folded arms, or they stood with chins raised high. All we know is that they stood. We don't know if they were standing on dirt, or they were standing on grass, but I do know they were standing on God's Word. You say, how do I know that? Because they were told in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, you shall not bow down to a graven image. And that commandment 2 was built on commandment 1, which said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. It was crystal clear to them. 
I think this is important, by the way, as we, we think about what this, how this relates to us today. This was not a gray area issue. This was absolutely black and white in Scripture. There was no question where they were drawing their line and what they were standing for. They were educated by Babylon in chapter 1. They learned the language. They, they had their names changed. They did participate in, the, in, in those parts of it. But when it came to this specific command, that's where they drew the line. Some might think, well, good thing we don't live in Babylon. We don't have to deal with this. We deal with this every day. That's why the New Testament commands the church, quote, flee idolatry. It doesn't matter if it's metal or it's mental, an idol is an idol. And when we give ourselves to bow before idols, we have broken the first and second commandment. Those are commandments about priorities. My friends, the Bible is clear, your money doesn't come first. Your job doesn't come first. Your career doesn't come first. Your, 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 your family doesn't come first. Your nation doesn't come first, and your politics do not come first because only God comes first. You shall have no other gods before me. We don't seek only the kingdom of God, but we do seek first the kingdom of God. Revelation 18 says, Come out of Babylon, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven. Are we willing to stand up for righteousness? Are we willing to stand up for Christ? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing, so they stood. Verse 13 says, The king was in a rage and gave angers to bring them near. Since peer pressure didn't work, he tries what every tyrant does, which is called intimidation. He calls them forward and gives them a second chance. And in verses 13 to 15, he explains the situation again. He orders them, bow down or face my wrath. It was not enough for Nebuchadnezzar to blaspheme God. He wanted them to join in his blaspheming of God. And just when it seems like Nebuchadnezzar couldn't do anything worse, and Nebuchadnezzar couldn't cross any more lines, and Nebuchadnezzar couldn't break any more commandments, at the end of verse 15 he says, And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? What God 